I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Isabelle Racico and I'm Martine Saint-Victor. Welcome to Seat at the Table. Everybody is pretty excited for us today because we get to talk to Malcolm Gladwell. Yes, I'm going to brag about this interview for <laughs> for a long time. So if you're friends and family, buckle up. So why do you like him so much? Well, you know, he describes himself as a skinny Canadian. That's his Twitter bio. But the rest of us, Isabel, you, myself, millions of others, we rather know him as the best-selling author of such books as David and Goliath, The Tipping Point, and Blink. He also writes for New Yorker magazine, and now he's just started his second season of his podcast, Revisionist History, where he shines a light on the overlooked and he clarifies the misunderstood. And we'll end the show with the elephant in the room segment, where we're going to talk about celebrities, whether they should apologize or not for their indiscretion. They shouldn't. <laughs> okay, but first, here's Malcolm Gladwell. What a treat for us to have Malcolm Gladwell join us at the table. A heartfelt welcome, Malcolm Gladwell. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, you know that we're just starting this brand new podcast. Uh, you're in your second season, so please don't sugarcoat it. We need to know. We need to know what somebody somebody should have told you. You know what you wish somebody would have told you when you first started. Uh, um, well, uh, only that it's more uh, more work than you ever imagined. You know, I thought it was, I sort of, I, I kind of signed up for this podcast on a lark, thinking I could, you know, it would be a fun little side project. And it now takes uh, six months of every year. So um, I was, if I'd known that, I don't know if I would have said yes. Um, actually, that's not true, because I really love doing it, but it's uh, a lot of work. <laughs> so we should already back down? No, no. <laughs> well, yours is, yours is different than mine, because mine is, um, mine's not live interviews, right? So it's... Mine is is agonizing months of reporting and production, um, so it's a it's a it's a different animal. And you've said that one of your friends um, told you that you think with your eyes and you feel with your ears, and that you got somewhat of an epiphany from that adage. What else has come up um, from doing the podcast? What wisdom has brought uh, has been brought to you doing the shows, doing the various episodes? Well, you learn what you can and can't do on the air. I mean, people who've been in radio their whole careers know this. I don't. I've never been, never done um, audio before. So there's a certain kind of very kind of data-heavy analytical argument that's hard to make. Like the same thing that somebody can some can pick up in an instant if they're reading it on the page uh, can take a long time to very imperfectly explain if you're talking to them, right? At the same time, you can communicate um, emotion so much more, and you can create intimacy so much easier, uh, more easily. So I think it's sort of a, it's just a different, really, I, I think the thing that surprised me the most is just how 
um, how much of a change in the way you tell a story it makes, whether you're telling it on the page or, or over the air. Speaking of emotions, in season one of your podcast, Revisionist History, one that was very difficult for me to listen to, difficult in the sense that um, I found it so emotional, is the episode called Carlos Doesn't Remember. And yes. at one And at one point in it, you describe privilege as the opportunity of getting second chances. Actually, your direct quote is, that's the point of privilege. It buys you second chances. Tell us, why is it so difficult for those who have privilege to recognize that, that they have it, regardless of the color you want to give that privilege? Why is it so tough for them to say, you know what, it's true, we are privileged, mm-hmm. we have more chances, things are different for us? Yeah. You know, I wish I had a better answer to that. It's always been a puzzle for me. You know, I did a an episode in the second season. The first episode was this sort of half-serious, half-whimsical attack on golf. And I was really talking about how wealthy people in Los Angeles have managed to have these private golf courses on beautiful, enormous tracts of land in the middle of the city, and they don't pay any property tax because they've rigged the system. And people who belong to those clubs were incredibly upset, or people who belong to similar kind of clubs, you know, and said all kinds of nasty things on Twitter, which I kind of expected, but also it always comes as a surprise when someone who is already wealthy and privileged, you know, has such a grievance and merely pointing out the extent to which they have a special deal makes them really angry and they behave as if they are, um, you know, some kind of targeted, maligned minority. (laughs) When the the only reason this whole issue came up is that they have this special status by virtue of their wealth and position. So there is this kind of common theme of um, uh, there's a kind of blindness, I suppose, that comes with uh, privilege. And people, I guess, participate in mythologies about their own hard-won success even more vigorously as they climb the, as they climb the ladder. Um, I guess the only way I can explain it, but I don't, I don't have a good explanation. It's something that in my entire career of writing about these kinds of things has always puzzled me. Well, yeah, and when I read you and when I listen to you, you know, sometimes it feels like privileged people also have a lot of guilt and that may be why they don't want to acknowledge it. Oh, I don't think they have guilt at all. Oh, you don't think they feel guilty about it? Oh, my goodness, no. On the contrary, I think that's the furthest thing from their mind. I think they have a kind of of self-righteous belief in their own value and merit and hard work and they... They're deeply invested in the notion that they got where they, where they were, where they are because of, of their own actions, and uh, know they're in the grip of a, of a, of a, a powerful illusion. I, I wish they were guilty. Um, <laughs> I wish they felt that way. They don't. That's what's so surprising to me. I mean, maybe you have different experience with, but my experience with with kind of American privilege is that, you know. People with, uh, you know, think, think about President Trump, who, you know, has cultivated this image of himself as a self-made man. He's the son of one of the richest men in New York. Yes. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. like, it, it doesn't, he doesn't feel guilty about that. He's forgotten that. Yeah. Isn't it funny that he actually um, kept on saying uh, during the campaign that Hillary was the one who was the elite when, in fact, she... 
She was she she couldn't have been more average know, American like, family. She's the daughter of an Episcopal minister. I mean, she's like yeah. couldn't be more middle class. He's the kid whose you know father gave him a a massive multi million dollar stake to to start his real estate empire. Yeah, it's these it's it's funny the kind of stories people tell themselves, and that's one of the things that motivates me in doing something like this podcast is it is a chance to kind of hold a mirror up to people who aren't used to having a mirror held up to them. You know, it's, I think that's yeah. an important thing to do in, um, in a society that's as unequal as, as, as this one. Mm-hmm. You do uh, go over history a lot, and Canada is celebrating several historical milestones this year. As you know, Canada's 150th anniversary, and Montreal's 375th. So what parts of uh, Canada's history do you think have been overlooked or misunderstood? Well, you know, it's funny, because my perspective is slightly different because now I'm a Canadian who's largely speaking to an American audience. Yeah. And so I would face the question, for me, this slightly different is, um, what are the... So Americans may um, have a notion about Canada which is either uninformed or ill-informed. Um, and so the question for me is, what are those aspects of Canadian history that would be most surprising um, yeah. to Americans? And, for example... The, the the way in which the English and the French, Francophones and Anglophones, uh, set out to create a society that welcomed both cultures, how how much thought and attempt, attention and time and energy went into that, is an it's an extraordinary story, which mm. I don't even know, know whether Canadians understand what an extraordinary um, yeah. example of cultural accommodation and tolerance that was. It would be very interesting to go back and to say to Americans, this country you don't think about much that is on your border managed a difficult moment in its history in a very different way than you did. And, you know, you, there are still today lessons you could learn from that. Uh, so it's, I, th- I think it would be things like that. I, I think yeah, Americans are, you know, they're, they're, um, uh, they're, in, they're incredibly inward looking. And they could do, I think, sometimes with... Um, opportunities to um, to look at other countries to see how other countries have managed similar sorts of problems. But are they interested in doing that? Do they care? Well, I think uh, they do care and they are interested in doing it. They just don't have opportunities to. When you're as big as that, you know, I, I always talk about how when I was growing up in Ontario, you know, we would listen to CBC every night and the news of my that I listened to as a child... Uh, you know, the six o'clock news every night. And then as it happens right afterwards, was about the world. It was about Canada in part, but it it was necessarily about the world because Canada is a small country that is swimming in a very big pond. And so you, you know, I I grew up learning about the, you know, the troubles in Northern Ireland as if Northern Ireland was a province of Canada, right? Or... You know, or what was going on in the Middle East, as if it was something as real as what was going on with the, you know, Quebec separatism. You know, the world that I was introduced to through the news every night was much bigger than Canada. Canada was a piece of this very large puzzle. Mm-hmm. The same experience in the United States would have not would have been very different, right? It would have been you would if you grew up watching the news every night in. Georgia in the same period or in Connecticut in the same period, you would have learned about the United States and only, you know, fleetingly about the rest of the world. 
So it's, it's conditioned in the nature of the, of the environments people grow up in. You know, even I have an episode of my podcast that's a retelling of the famous Supreme Court case, Brown versus Board of Education. Oh, yes. And it's a piece of American history from 50 years ago that Americans don't know. So the country is so, is so vast and so many things have happened that there are huge, crucial parts of American history that Americans don't even know. I mean, it's a very different uh, kind of challenge to talk about history in a big country than it is to talk about history in a small country. So are you saying a little bit that listening to the CBC planted the history uh, seed in you? Oh, yeah. The interest, yeah. I think of, of one of the, one of speaking of privilege, one of the great privileges of my childhood was listening to the news every night and then as it happens. I mean, I got, mm, yeah. I got Barbara Frum, you know, <laughs> maybe one of the greatest journalists um, of my lifetime. Mm. Um, you know, here was a child who was going to grow up to be a journalist and who was I listening to every night? This absolute gold standard of how to be curious and to be a good interviewer and to be engaging to your audience. I mean, talk about a privilege, right? I mean, wow, didn't get any better than that. Um, right. And then hearing about the world every night, um, as opposed mm. to just my own backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a little town in southern Ontario. It wasn't like I was in some cosmopolitan center. Speaking of journalism, you are a Washington Post alumni, and since the last U.S. election, the Post has gone through a somewhat of a resur- resurgence, excuse me, of popularity of sorts, if you will, mm-hmm. at least subscription-wise. Mm-hmm. And they've taken quite the stand with their new motto, democracy dies in darkness. Dies in darkness, yeah. Right? And print media and media in general has taken quite a beating uh, in recent years, even more so with the current White House administration. Give us a sense of how important the role of journalism is today, in your opinion. The mistake journalists make is they're Journalists have become businessmen, and they evaluate the success of their enterprise by how much money it makes. And I always try to remind journalists, you're not business. I mean, you are affected by the business climate. You're not businessmen. You measure the value of what you do in its cultural and social impact. And more people are reading the product of mainstream journalism today than ever before. More people are reading the Washington Post today than have ever read the Washington Post in the history of the Washington Post. Right. Right. Yeah. Same thing with the New York Times, and I'm sure with the Globe and Mail, and, you know, you go down the list. um, You know, we are uh, playing an even more important role than we've ever played. And but we are so kind of lost in our um, self-pity and solipsistic reveries about our declining revenues that we've forgotten this fact. We're crucial. You know, we'll sort out somebody will sort out the business side. It's getting sorted out, I think, as we speak. Um, but the f- truth is that audi- the audience out there is better educated than it's ever been, more curious than it's ever been, and more um, eager and uh, and demanding of uh, news and analysis and thoughtful commentary than ever before. So mm-hmm. this is the golden age of journalism. Look at the list of the, the most popular podcasts. I mean, now that I'm a podcaster, you know, it's it's a con- some of them are frivolous, fun things. Some of them are really serious. your podcast is that you're taking a second look at moments in history that you believe are misunderstood or overlooked. 
Uh, as our show is one that tackles uh, popular culture, we wanted to give you a series of names and references from pop culture and ask you how you think history should remember them, okay? All right. All right. M Monica Lewinsky. Oh, uh, I hope history remembers her sympathetically. I mean, I, you know, she was, she was a girl who made a, a very understandable mistake. And I feel like her life got ruined. And I feel terrible for her. I, 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 you know, she got caught up in something much larger than uh, she should have. And nothing about that whole episode reflects well on us as a society. I totally agree with agree. you. Yeah. What about Tiger Woods? You know, for a time, he was one of the most electrifying athletes for a long time. One of the most electrifying athletes we'll ever see. He's clearly a complicated person and his life hasn't gone the way he'd hoped recently, but nothing will ever take away the pleasure that he brought to millions of people, um, so we, myself so, included. So we'll remember the greatness more than the drama? Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to remember the drama at all. I mean, his highs were so high that nothing that happened, can happen to him subsequently can in any way I detract from them. How will history remember Pete Rose? <laughs> Well, Pete Rose is a man out of time. He was a baseball player who, had he played in the 20s and 30s and 40s, would have been perfectly at home. But I feel like he got caught between two eras, between a much um, scrappier, more lawless era and the modern era, which is where standards are different. And he sort of straddled them. Even t being born 10 years earlier, I think he would have been remembered very differently. Oh, wow. How about... Kanye West. <laughs> I'm a Kanye. West. I, I'm a Kanye I mean, West defender, so I, I, I am. I'm. I'm going to be hanging on to your every word. You know, listen. He's Kanye West is genius. Um, he's produced some amazing music, but more importantly, I think he is one of the very few entertainers, one of the first entertainers to figure out the way the modern media works and exploit right. it to his benefit, and that. You know, if you don't think that's genius, you're missing something because, you know, it was a very, very complicated. That's a very, very complicated question to solve. Lots of smart people tried to solve it. He did it better than anybody else. And my hat's off to him. Um, how will history remember John Lennon's Imagine song? Oh, you know, I'm I have to confess, I just am not a massive Beatles fan. Mm -hmm. Um We could tell in your awe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so. Breaking news, Malcolm Gladwell does not fancy the Beatles. No, I, th I mean, I understand how great they are, but that's just never been a song that has meant um, a whole... I find the Beatles too... Um, I, find their, I find them lyrically unsatisfying. And that song is a beautiful song, but like, I, what does it say? I, I, it doesn't say anything that moves me terribly. It's too, it's too kind of um, uh, vague and bland. Even though the world is falling apart, you, 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 you find no inspiration, no comfort in that no, song? No, it's not, it's not for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, but you find comfort in running. I'm a, I'm a runner too, but I have to tell you, I was um, not shocked, surprised. but surprised by your quote. This is what you've said about running. It's soft to run with music. It's people running from their running. Yes. I was just creating trouble. Come on. I mean, like, you know, whatever. I'm like, every now and again, I, 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 have, I always feel like I always try to be thoughtful and nice and considerate, except on the subject of running, where I feel like that's when I can be a bit of a jerk. 
So I was just, I was you being said, You said grumpy. it, we didn't. I was being grumpy old man Malcolm and saying those kids with things in their ears, they need to take them out. Because <laughs> that's how I run with music. And I think that I realized by reading your quote is that I do run from running. <laughs> yeah. Don't run from running. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, but it's you painful. Should... No, do, do people, here's the question. Do people do yoga with things in their ears? No, no one no. does yoga with things in her ears. Right. You're in the moment, right? It's a mindful exercise. But what I'm saying is that running is, ought to be, in its highest form, it is mindful exercise. It is a chance to, to, uh, to engage with your consciousness on a higher level. Why would you, like, blast music through your ears when you're doing that? But that's, like I said, that's just me being grumpy, Malcolm. Yes, I, you know, I was going to remind you that you're being grumpy, old man, because music <laughs> gives you energy. Even, look, you don't have to put Beyonce. We know you don't fancy her music, but you can put other music that gives you energy, right? Yeah, no, no, no. I, and, I, you're, you're totally right to call me out on this. But, um, but I, was, I, you know, I was having fun with the, uh, with the person who called me up. Yeah. Plus, plus, Malcolm, you can please put your put your marketing hat on. People can listen to your podcast while they're running. I know that. I know that. But come, come on, you know, grumpiness comes first. Marketing <laughs> hat comes second. So you're a grumpy, skinny Canadian, Canadian that lives in the United States. I'm only grumpy about um, old school running questions. I'm, <laughs> otherwise, I'm very pleasant. <laughs> uh, I'd like to ask you this. We didn't talk about success because you've talked in so many different interviews about it. But I'm a parent of two boys, and I'd like to have your take on how to nurture their disadvantages because you say that disadvantage can improve your chance of success. I'd like mm -hmm. to know as a parent what I can do. Well, just don't make their life too easy, I think. Is that too... I mean, I, I don't know, without knowing much about your circumstance or them, um, I would just say, you know, your job... But you know this better than I do. Your job as a parent is not to make their life as easy as possible. Yeah. Um, it's to cultivate values and strengths in them. And sometimes that, that means leaving some rocks in their path. But we tend to want to help them with their difficulties and their disabilities. And But what you're saying is that these disabilities may help them in a way that we, can't, we don't even expect to. Or that may not become obvious for, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. I mean... It just depends on what is your philosophy about childhood. Is do you think of childhood as a as training ground for adulthood, or do you think of childhood as an experience in its own right? And you know, if you think of childhood as training ground, then then you think you have a different attitude. Uh, you know, I don't know whether one is right or wrong, but uh, I do know I know lots of lots of very privileged people and people from very privileged childhoods. And you know, I meet them all the time in New York, and I I don't think they're the better for it, and I think they would agree. Hmm. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's worth, it's worth just giving that some second thought. In season two, um, Malcolm, you tackle race, um, mm -hmm. a little bit more perhaps than in season one. What's your take on, on where we are today in race and where are we going? You know, I think that we have made some progress in some areas on race and, and other times, in other areas we've, and particularly, I mean, I, the, the Canadian racial story and the American racial story are very different. That's, I mean, profoundly different. Um, and so, I, you know, you, I don't think you can generalize. And the English story is very different as well. Um, and the, the issue, the, the, I'm now most familiar with the kind of American story. And my sort of 
principal observation about race in this country, America, is that um, people are weary of it. White people are weary of it. And uh, they've just, they just don't want to talk about it anymore or think about it. They sort of think it's done. You know, that problem's been solved and it's time to move on. And uh, I don't think it's time to move on. And I don't think the problem's solved. But um, that's a very different attitude than uh, many white Americans had in 1968, right? Um, and in many ways, it's a tougher sell now. It's almost easier for me to deal with you if you have outright hostility than if you have indifference. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're right. That's the biggest issue. The issue, the episode of Vision's issue is out on um, is about education. Talks about the fact that there are these profound, verifiable indications of racial bias in the public education system to this day in the United States that nobody wants to talk about. That's and why don't they want to talk about it? Because they they are sick of it. They want to put it under the rug. Um, and that's the problem that we're dealing with. Right. What a treat it was for us, Malcolm Gladwell. So thank you for your wisdom, your time, your knowledge. And like I said before, please do let us know if you come to Montreal. Isabel is picking up the tab. Okay. For Wonderful. dinner. <laughs> thank you, guys. What a fun interview, huh? I know. I saw the light in your eyes. Yes. By light, do you mean the sweat falling (laughs) down my forehead? (laughs) Today's elephant in the room is Tiger Woods. Yes. Tiger Woods. Go go for it, Martine. (laughs) You already have an emotion in your eyes. Yes. Um, Tiger Woods. As you remember, uh, was the number one golfer for years, broke many barriers, um, hasn't played for a while because he's been injured. He still made over $40 million last year with endorsements and sponsors, etc. And he was arrested in Jupiter, Florida for uh, driving... Under the influence. Yes, driving under the influence, uh, not alcohol, but prescribed medicine. I find that the media coverage was garbage in the sense that people were very quick first to almost celebrate this downfall. and That's all, how you see it. Yeah, go on. That's how it was. Because mm-hmm. even not only media, but also I, I watched the, rea- the reaction on social media. And one of, the th- one of the things I don't like about social media is this uh, tribal mentality. Yeah, Kick them when they're down. One person starts kicking, then you add to it. And this is very, it's not constructive at all. And I find that people were very, seem jubilant that Tiger had fallen. And the reason I bring it up is because he later apologized. And his apology really did mention that he was not drunk, did mention that it was prescribed, prescribed medicine. And I found the media was very slow in correcting um, their previous really? yes, their previous headlines, and the reason why I, I bring Tiger is because I do find that the media coverage has been unfair to him since the sex scandal in two thousand nine. You call it a sex scandal, I say yeah. indiscretions. <laughs> <laughs> and here we go. Yes, we. But okay, go on, go on. No, and so I bring this up because Tiger, for me, should have never have apologized when the indiscretions came to light. What happened was between him and consenting adults who knew he was married, and that's really none of our business. He's a golfer. I don't care about what he does in his private life if he's not breaking the law. And so, but he fell in the trap of apologizing, which is, which is a trap. 
And now he takes prescrip prescription medicine, gets arrested, and apologizes for that. Okay, I, I understand what you're saying, but I see things completely different. When you're, so? Well, when you're a celebrity, it's a privilege. It's a privilege, and most of them are extremely rich. And it comes, unfortunately, with demands. They are not perfect, I understand. But in, in Tiger Woods' career, you know, he's made millions and millions of dollars thanks to sponsorship because of his wholesome image. He's brought and in. He's brought it. He's put him, himself in the forefront with his family, with his perfect family. You, and he's played you, that image. No, it's about no, you. He's played with no, that image. But yes. you, no. you describe it as a perfect family. There is not one time that Tiger Woods has said, "Oh, here I am with my perfect family." We well, you just, don't need to say those words to put out that image. Well, what is he it's, supposed to do? He's supposed to take photos but, looking like a crackhead no, to, to show I'm that saying, he's not. No, but, it's not a perfect family. No, but what I'm saying, Martine, is that he played he played that image. He made himself look like a wholesome man, and so you have to pay the price when you you know, have sex with half of the, the, the country, I, which is, I, I disagree. I, you know, I, I'm in public relations, so I'm going to tell you how I see it. He did not put himself in a position to be holier than thou. His branding was number one golfer in the world, which he was for many years. Now, if from that you, and when I say you, I mean, collectively, collectively. if from the fact that you say, because he's the number one golfer, He's perfect. He's great. I wish I... No, you can't... That's that's your problem. That is not Tiger Woods' problem. Well, when no, I I'm sorry. Uh, at that stage, when you're a role model, you have to take... You can't have your cake and eat it too. You cannot ha be above certain things because celebrities have privileges that none of us have. And you can't have your cake and eat it too. Meaning that, you know, you have to take responsibility for what you do. And unfortunately, when you are a personality, your private life is less private. And it comes with that. It is part of the game. And you know it. Once you, you, you decide to become either you're the number one golfer, the best baseball player, or the best singer. And everybody understands that. We're now in a social media world, and that is also part of it. So to me, when Tiger Woods um, apologizes three months later after, you know, showing us a different side of himself, I think that's important because I have young boys growing up And if he doesn't apologize for what he's done, it tells them that it's okay to do these it, things and to be immoral. I come back to his indiscretions because he had affairs with women who knew he was married. They were consenting. The apology he had to do was to his wife and to his kids. That's it. The only thing Tiger Woods has told you over the years is that he's the best golfer in the world. He I was disagree. the best golfer in the world. That's it. He's never. And I'll and I'll go further. And and I'm going to use Oprah mm. as a reference. And listeners, this is not the last time we will use Oprah <laughs> as a reference. Tiger Woods was on Oprah years ago with his parents, and he said at the time, "If I can be a third of a parent that my parents were to me, I'll be happy." You know what that shows me? Shows me humility. It shows me that he knows how difficult it is to parent. Never has he said, I'm a, the best father. My wife is the best wife. My kids are perfect kids. Never has he said that. Mm. So you cannot put that on him. That's on you. That's not on him. So my point is that he apologized recently for uh, taking prescription drugs. I think it's ridiculous. I, uh, see, on that side, I agree with you. 
the, re- the the medication, he didn't have to apologize. But after going through what he did in 2009, maybe he felt he had to do it this time around. What I find difficult to swallow is how morally uh, uh, superior we often sound. And I think that's a very slippery slope. There's a difference between what you do privately, legally, in the privacy of your home or your hotel room, in the case of, of Tiger Woods, and committing, you know, breaking the law, committing crimes. That's night and day. And we need to remember that. We'll see what happens uh, when the next celebrity is caught doing something. Yes. <laughs> But I'll give them their phone number. Your phone number, Martine. This sounds good. <laughs> If you want to add your comment to this conversation, you can send us a tweet at Martine Montreal or at Isabelle Rassico using the hashtag at SeatCBC. We're also on Facebook, Seat at the Table CBC, or send us an old-fashioned email, seat at cbc.ca. Seat at the Table is a CBC original podcast. I'm Martine Saint-Victor. And I'm Isabelle Rassico. Seat at the Table is produced by Alan Johnson and Melissa Fondera with technical work by Martin Lavoie and Mélanie Vier. To make sure you never, ever, ever miss an episode of Seat at the Table, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to review us. Be kind. <laughs>